Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're going to have George Carl join us in a moment, but first at All-Star, Adam, The Last Dance, that's the longtime secret Bulls project that there's still not a a release date yet, but I think it's going to be, I wouldn't be surprised if it was next year at Chicago All-Star, which would make a whole, which would make a whole lot of sense. And so there's a lot of buzz about it at at this year's All-Star in Charlotte. And what I had heard was, and and I feel like I've I've heard the story or maybe I made up in my head, but I'm fairly certain I heard it was that a few years ago when LeBron had started to get a lot of the greatest of all time talk. That's when Jordan said, F it. Let's do it. And by by him saying, let's do it, that means let's get going on the Bulls 98 project, which for almost 20 years just lived in the NBA Entertainment Library. I remember being an intern and just seeing the film on the last three rows of the library back at 450 Harmon Meadow Boulevard because Adam Silver and, and Michael Jordan, Adam was the president of NBA Entertainment back in 98, they had a handshake deal that they were going to send. It was Andy Thompson who was the lead producer and his idea. Andy Thompson is Michael Thompson's brother, Clay Thompson's uncle, who's a, and he's a lead producer at the NBA, a longtime producer. And he pitched the idea, we're, let's follow the Bulls because this is going to be the last dance. And Phil was out and everybody else was going to be out. And Michael said he wasn't going to play for anybody else. So they had a handshake deal that said, we won't put this out there. We won't release any of this footage. And it's 500 hours of footage. We won't release any of it until you say the word, Michael. And then a few years ago, he said the word. And we're going to get it at some point. It's that 10-part, 10-hour documentary series from ESPN. It's going to be on Netflix. And the trailers have as the kids say, blown up the internet. It's going to be incredible. I mean, everyone is freaking out about what this thing is going to look like. And with all that video and all the the stories we've all heard, I'm sure you've been privy to to a little bit of that footage, Noah, being being a guy that was at, at the NBA. But I know for a long time I've heard about the back room video that people got to see from Michael Jordan and puts an end to that Jordan-LeBron debate once and for all, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think that might I would, be the idea. I was going to I was going to tell you a, a quick story of I, I saw LeBron and Carmelo Anthony play when both were in high school because we've got George Carl coming up on the podcast, which I couldn't be more excited about, honestly, because he is not just a wealth of information and had this incredible career, but he's a guy that speaks with such candor. I cannot wait to talk to him even about about Carmelo Anthony, but uh, when I saw LeBron and, and Carmelo play when they were in high school, it was at Trenton, New Jersey, primetime shootout, this incredible event. LeBron was a junior. Carmelo was a senior. And a couple of the things that I remember about this thing were that, one, there was this huge dude that was like 6'8", that looked like an NBA player. And everyone sort of in the press area was trying to figure out who this kid was. Like, what? Is that a pro? Is he in college? Like, who is this guy? And you could just feel there was like this magnetism around him and sitting next to him was worldwide west sports because <laughs> he's everywhere and uh turns out it was Derek character who at the time was the number one eighth grader in the country which i <laughs> found to be incredible and then the other part about that game which carmelo won by the way i interviewed him afterwards and in, in uh, the hallway i remember but after that game huh. i'm walking out to my car and i see mike miller who was a rookie i think at that time and the All-Star game was around that time. And I think he had come to watch uh, because he was off for the All-Star break. And he came to watch this game. And we're walking out right around the same time he is. And Mike Miller was wearing a Larry Bird jersey. So keep in mind, this is a guy wearing a Celtics jersey. Yeah. Even though it's Bird, it was incredible that uh, Mike Miller has always had a sense of, of history. And he's walking to his, his car. And we said to him first, 
oh, Mike Miller, Corn Palace, because he played in the Corn Palace in North Dakota when he was in high school, which I happen to know. So he got a kick out of that. And then we said, what'd you think of LeBron? And he's like, that kid's amazing. And I always have that moment because him and LeBron ended up becoming, you know, Mm -hmm. best buddies and all-time teammates and all that stuff. So I don't know. It's just an interesting Carmelo LeBron story that had some uh, quirks to it that I, I was dying to tell you. It's a good one. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. This show, it's Catch and Shoot. It comes your way every Wednesday with Adam and me and we'll bring you, well, it says here, Smart Conversation. Uh, all right, if they say so. And marquee guests like George Carl. Our Friday show is the Pure Hoops podcast, BJ Armstrong, Eric Newman. And then every Monday, it's the Wise Ass show with Mike Wise. So check out all of the Pure Hoops media shows. You can subscribe, download, listen, rate, review, enjoy. Darlene, all yours. Time to hit the spread. What I want to do quickly before we get to George Carl is fix All-Star Weekend. And Adam, I think the in-arena experience and the TV experience now are both lacking. So I think in, in way back it used to be the in-arena experience was, but the TV experience was great. So let's fix it. The three-point shootout. I don't know why they went to 10 guys. Let's go back to eight and go split screen. So you have two guys shooting at the same time. It's better on TV. It's better in the in the arena because you're going to get fans pumped because you got two guys going against each other just like in the skills challenge. And then when one player hears the crowd starting to roar, then it's going to get their blood flowing. So I think and it moves things along. And I and I know that commercial inventory means something, but I think that type of money can be made up in other ways and I think with digital rights I think it I think it will end up being made up in other ways because really what all-star Saturday night is is perfect for just social clips you don't have to be there and watch it the whole time and then some of the in arena during the events uh, or in between events some of that entertainment this year completely missed the mark let's just keep it simple keep it simple and that will move things along in the arena three and a half hours way too long in the arena and on tv yeah, I'm with you on the three pound, sh- the three point shootout, especially. I I am totally with you. I I have the sense that it's sort of like when guys go to the line to shoot technicals, and they're the only one being viewed by the entire crowd. There's something weird where guys don't shoot the same percentage as You're they right. typically would because the like the competition part is taken away, and a guy in your face is taken away. And I I think that what you're proposing to go back to the good old days where it was the split screen and two guys going at once, I think is much better experience. I think it's much better for competition, which is what we keep clamoring for. So I'm with you on that. I also Noah would love to see some actual celebrities playing the celebrity game. Oh my God. I felt so, I felt so old. I, I, I knew like five of them and three of them were former players. I always count how many uh, celebrities I know and I'm the exact same way I'm like I don't know who these people are but I don't even think it's because we're that out of touch which we are obviously but I think it's more to do with the idea that I don't know they're just ending up with like D-list celebrities and that's not really a celebrity game to me I mean how much more fun would it be to see if guys that we actually know like is George Clooney gonna get hurt you know I know he probably tore it up in the rock and jock game (laughs) during our childhood but and the last one for me Noah is I have a proposal. I, I think that during the All-Star game, uh, or rather after the All-Star game, I should say, they should award a defensive player of the game and give a whole bunch of money to that winner, you know, go put it towards charity or what have you. But I do think it would give guys a reason to strive to to play some semblance of defense. And I, I know I sound like, you know, get off my lawn, old man. But the truth is, that it's the one thing I think that's missing from this game. We're seeing tremendous skill. We're seeing guys shoot it from 35 feet out. Everyone's trying to pass. They're not selfish per se. Like, so you see a lot of the sweet passes. You see some incredible dunks. But, like, on drives to the lane, like, there is absolutely no defense. And I would just like to see one guy try to get in and mix it up who's not named Kawhi Leonard 
you know, one guy that wants to get competitive. We saw it a little bit once in a while. Joel Embiid went back and forth somewhat. Like you see some of it, but guys don't want to get embarrassed and guys sort of want to let the other guy get their love. So I would love to see a defensive player of the game. Don't know that it would change anything, but that's the one change I'd love to see. Yeah, I don't think it's going to change anything, but I mean, look, it's not, I mean, we, we can't go back to the way it used to be because the money actually meant something then and the money just doesn't mean anything now. And as much as they say, you know, you can raise this money for charity, except, I mean, these guys could be giving that much money on their own to these guys. So I, I don't I don't think there is, I, I really don't think there is a, a fix for the All-Star game. I Honestly, I didn't think it was, this year I didn't think it was, it was, I don't think it was so bad. No, no, it's not so bad. And the other one that I think that some players might say, that the NBA now also has extended this this All-Star break so that it's not just this short period of the All-Star game. And I think the reason for that, Noah, and you're a guy that was used to work for the league, could, could probably point out, I would assume it's so that the guys playing in the game also feel like they get somewhat of a break and a rest. Yeah, LeBron wanted it, and LeBron wanted it, and LeBron got it. There you go. That was fascinating. And joining us now, the 2013 NBA Coach of the Year, Coach of the All-Star team four times. He went to the Final Four back in 1972 after winning the NIT with North Carolina back in 1971. He is the sixth all-time winningest coach in NBA history. He's right behind Pat Riley and right ahead of Phil Jackson. He's George Carl. George, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. No problem at all. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the memories. So let's start before we get to a bunch of the memories. Let's start with the news of the day. And as we record this on Tuesday evening. Earlier today, the ESPN.com story came out about Tim Donaghy and, and a full two-year investigation, and it revealed a lot about the process and the execution of what he was up to and, and how much money actually was at stake and won and lost. When you were coaching, did you ever feel like things were ever fishy? Oh, I never specifically thought... Um you know, one referee was doing anything crazy like, uh, like it turned out today. Uh, but I can't, I mean, coaches are paranoid. I mean, we get, we get goofy from the standpoint of thinking referees have an, have an attitude towards us or, uh, you know, a vendetta against us. And, uh, I, but I never ever felt Don Hay was, you know, anything other than a referee that was having a bad night. Did did you ever think that that gambling ever came into play with any official? Did you, was that something that you as coaches ever talked about? I think we only talk about it philosophically. Uh, you know, when you're drinking beer in the summertime, you know, and you hear about you know the the scandals of the fifties and. And, you know, Doug Moe, one of my good friends, was banned from the NBA because of being in, in, kind of involved with some gamblers. And um, uh, But I think the only thing coaches probably talked about was why would you ever pay a player to fix a game when the referee would be – it would be easier for a referee to, you know, just call three seconds or illegal defense or, you know, you know it was a lot easier to understand that referees have much more influence on the game than even a player. As this news breaks today and as it first broke when the, the Donaghy scandal is, is broken, what's been the discussions between your fellow coaching friends and, and those that you know closely in the basketball community? You know, it always, when it comes down to refereeing, uh, coaches always will complain. They will always have a problem with refereeing. But we also know that the NBA by far has the best referees in the world. And they work at it. They do a great job of, of training. Uh, they're moving in a good direction all the time of bringing, you know, more analytical statistics into the game where they, they understand. And I think they've done a good job of making the game fast. And allowing freedom of movement has been good for the game. Uh, you know, at times now, I think the game is too offensive-oriented, not and the defense doesn't get enough love. But I think in time, you know, sometimes the pendulum swings a little too far one way, and then they make an adjustment to get it back to kind of a balance, the mentality that 
be a championship team, you got to play both ends of the court. George, in your book, Furious George, you got criticized by, you know, at least media types. And there were people around the league for sort of your candor and, and really some of the, the old, you know, bad blood stories that you were bringing up. But, you know, for those that really dove into the book and read it, it was more about you telling stories if you were right next door to someone. If you're if you're sitting on a, a bar stool with someone and having a, a conversation, they asked you, what what's it like to be a coach in the NBA? It was almost like hearing these revealing, truthful stories. So I'm curious, your impression when you think about how how everything was sort of uh, interpreted by people. I mean, we always want honesty from from those that are close to the game. And then when they give it to us, sometimes we, we have a hard time with it. So what were your impressions of some of the, the response that you got from, from your book? Well, I'd almost bet the people that were highly critical of me didn't read the whole book. Uh, I think they read the excerpts. They think they took certain chapters and certain... You know, when you write a book, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna break some eggs, you're gonna break some heads, and you're gonna tell some stories that some people aren't gonna like. Uh, but, you know, if you read the book, it's a celebration. It's an out, outwardly love for the game of basketball. My passion and my energy of wow, here's the kid from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that can become an NBA coach because he loves the game and was tutored and mentored by. Dean Smith in the Carolina way and fell in love with the game, the pro game because of uh, some coaches like Doug Moe and Larry Brown and Jack Ramsey and, and Bob Bass and, and, and to get lucky to have a, you know, to have a good team and have good players and living in a generation and an era of the game of basketball where, the, where it exploded worldwide and became a, you know, probably has become the second most popular sport in the world next to soccer and you know i i just think you know the criticism hey i was i was just telling you how i felt i didn't i never i think i never flaunted my opinion to be the right thing or or you know it should be you know i was i was being wronged in any way i think what you were saying i was i was just telling you how a coach feels and sometimes you know how we feel is not always good and there is anger, and there is frustration, and there is, uh, you know, we sometimes you wish you were supported a little bit more. But in the same sense, if you read the whole book, it's it's a love fest for the NBA and how much, how fortunate and how blessed I think I've been in my career. Who was the guy in your career? So let's let's tell some more stories. Who was the guy in your career that you feel like you got the most out of being their coach? Oh man. Uh, you know, that's, that's hard to say because usually when you say something like that, you probably are going to pick a role guy, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, a, a guy that, you know, was a bench guy or a guy that was the fourth or fifth best player on the team. You know, my favorite player, when people ask me who my favorite player was, I usually say Nate McMillan because mm-hmm. when I got to Seattle, Nate McMillan was the most selfless, committed, dedicated player. He was a great leader in the locker room. Uh, he sacrificed totally and completely every day. You know, not only his mind was for, for, for being a team and uh, his leadership as players, he could handle tough players like Gary Payton and he could motivate, you know, bench players uh, like, you know, Greg Anthony or Vincent Askew or or somebody like that. He, he made the team work. Um, and I don't know if I got more out of Nate than anybody else, but uh, he was awful. He was, he's probably my favorite. And now I love what he's doing in Indiana right now. So I want to go back to that time when you, when you got to Seattle. Eddie Johnson has told me that in one of his first practices there, he just looked at Gary Payton and he said, shut the f- up. When was, do you remember the first time that, uh, that you ever had to look at Gary and tell him the same thing? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Gary and I had a lot of wrestling matches. Uh, a lot of early, early, uh, you know, early, early years at Seattle. You know, Gary and Nate were competing for the point guard position. I loved both of them. 
And, you know, Gary kind of wanted, he didn't want that competition early. But as it went on, he found out that he and Nate together could work along with being a backup. And that's when we really became a really good team is kind of when, you know, I had the leadership of Nate and the talent of Gary. And I had two-point guards. And even back then, I think I think today's game, you're seeing more and more teams playing with two-point guards. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we we had a great passing team in Seattle. You know, Nate, you had Nate and Gary. You had Detlef Shrimp, who was a very good passer. Sean Kemp was not a bad passer. He wasn't a great passer, but he wasn't. He was pretty good. And then you had Sam Perkins, who was a kind of a, a very unselfish, committed center. And I think one of the formulas that not many people understand that winning a championship, about I think about 90% of NBA teams that have won championships are great passing teams. And no one talks about it. You know, that's why I think, you know, Golden State is so much right now has such leverage on being the best team because they they love to pass the ball to each other. They love to sacrifice. You know, when Clay Thompson gets a hot night, they'll let him get 50. You know, when Kevin Kevin Durant gets hot, they'll let him go. You know, and they, they, they don't mind watching someone on their team have a great night. So the pass is the is the key to offense and a defensive mentality of playing every possession with an intensity and a commitment is probably the formula to win a championship at the defensive end of the court. So, George, an interesting part of that that you bring up, part of ball movement and passing and defensive commitment is also about guys having chemistry and wanting to play for each other and with each other. And an interesting point that I think about your career is you survived two straight first round playoff exits that were shocking to people. First one being the the one seed losing to the eight seed and, and ownership stuck with you. And following that you go to the NBA finals and, and, you know, match up against that 72 and 10 bulls team. How much, how much do you think that that run that you had the finals run was attributable to the fact that ownership was willing to let you stick it out, regardless of how difficult it might've been for them to deal with some of the questions in the media? Well, I think that question should be asked of uh, management more. Uh, the one, one of the first, you know, the first round losses was the year we played in Tacoma where he had basically 82 road games. And then, of course, another one was when Matumbo had the great game five and Denver beat us in a game five. It should have never got the game five on our fault. Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, um, the NBA, I'll be honest with you, I think continuity doesn't get enough love in any sport. But probably in basketball and football, you know, if, if you have, if you fail expectations more than a year, you probably have a good chance of losing your job. And sometimes even when you, you know, when coaches do a better job than expected, they, they can lose their job in, in the NBA and in the NFL too. And it's a dangerous job. It's a well-paid job. It's a fun job. Uh, but I think today's coverage of the game and with fantasy sport and, and analytics, and there's so many criticisms and when, when when a team has failure, probably the first guy in line to get criticized is is uh, is the coach. The players get criticized a little bit, but I think the coaches get criticized probably a little bit too much. They probably get too much credit when they they succeed, and they probably get too much criticism when they fail. I don't want to talk about the the continuity and the chemistry and coverage of the game because when there are the players only meetings and locker room verbal locker room fights and and sometimes even physical now it these days it it creates massive headlines and then it becomes a five alarm fire how often did that type of stuff with blow ups in the locker room happen and any of them stand out to you during your career oh man uh <laughs> You know, like I'm trying to forget all the bad memories. You know, I, I, I mean, I, 
I think early in the 80s, there was probably more physical confrontation than the 90s and probably even less in the, 20, in the 2000s. I think our game has gotten to be more sophisticated and maybe more, more, more entertainment oriented, more TV oriented. And I think the league has done a good job of policing the old time fights that weren't very pretty at times. And, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud and happy to be a part of the old school physicality of the NBA. Uh, I, you know, you know, there had to be a grit and there had to be a toughness. Uh, to win in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 90s. And uh, the game now has gotten to be very fast and very finesse and less physical. I'm not saying it's a bad game now. I think, I, you know, I've always been one that loves to play fast. I love to play quick. and, and But I also think the game at times is a little too finesse and a little too soft. I wish the defense could be a little tougher and be and, and have more physicality to cover in maybe in you know a little bit old old school way. So speaking of today's game, when was the last time you were approached about a job, whether on on any level, NBA, college, anything? Oh, I got calls this year from European teams. Um, I don't think I've gotten many calls from the NBA since I've left Sacramento. Uh, you know, there were some maybe preliminary phone calls, but nothing ever substantial. But I would say since I've been out every year, there's been something from Europe that has come up. You know, I, I after my after Sacramento for a couple of years, I did some, you know, some uh, amateur looking into could I be a college coach? And the more I studied college basketball, I realized I was probably it. I'm probably a pro coach and not a college coach, but mm-hmm. you never know. You never when the phone. You never know when the phone's going to ring. Um, you know, I I still have the love for the game. I still think I can help teams. Uh, I don't know if it has to be a head head coach. It, you know, as a consultant, as a you know, as someone helping coaches. Uh, you know, I I hope hope something will fall my way someday. Why not Europe? Well, I have a 14-year-old daughter. Oh, there we a go. Little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit at a bad time. You know, I would think maybe, maybe two years from now, and she might want to come over there and hang out with me for a year. That might, might work its way out. But right now, being a ninth grader, being, going, going to a new high school, and mm-hmm. it, came, it comes at the wrong time sometimes. Well, your, your son could also hire you when he gets an NBA job. Uh, coaching the G League team for for the Lakers right now, Kobe Carl uh, obviously had a great playing career in, in college, and then and then uh, his stint in the in the NBA. Um, George, before I even ask you about him, I am curious though. You, you talk about coaching in Europe. You had a, a stint in the late '80s, early '90s, where you were going back and forth between the Albany Patroons and Real Madrid. What was that period of your life like? I loved it. Uh, I had. You know, I had some of the most positive experiences I've ever coached with some crazy situations with both years at Real Madrid. The first year, uh, I had the tragedy of Fernando Martin getting killed in an automobile accident and holding a team together through a lot of a lot of crazy. Uh, we made actually played in the finals that year against uh, Bologna and Michael Ray Richardson in the European Cup. And that team would also lose in the semifinals. And, and then the next year when I went back to Madrid is, you know, we had a really good team that would go on to win the, the Spanish championship and the European championship uh, when I left to come back to Seattle. And, uh, and to get out of a contract in, in Europe to come back and be a head coach in the NBA, I, that, was, that was a very interesting uh uh, time for me, uh, and, and it was amazing. You know, as I said, you know, on on the January first of the year, I got a phone call three weeks later from Seattle. I was thinking I had to go back to college. I was co- I had actually talked with Rick Majerus about being his associate head coach for a year or two, and I was planning on bringing my family back. And three weeks later, I get a phone call from Bob Whitsitt 
And uh, ever since then, I've been blessed to be an NBA coach. Would you would you get on the bench with uh, with Kobe if he becomes a head coach? I would think that would be a dream come true for me. I don't know if he'd want me though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he and I battle a lot. You know, he's. Uh, I think he's a, he's a, he's going to be a hell of a coach. I think he's a, he's having a you know he's not having a great year this year, but. I mean, I think he has the mentality in today's game to relate to today's player, and he has a he has an encyclopedia of coaches that he has listened to, and he has picked their brain. And I just think he's going through that that process of of learning and evolving. And I I think he's done a great job, and I hope someday he gets the opportunity to to try to push the buttons for an NBA team. You know, it seems like yesterday, George, I remember seeing you in the stands at ABCD camp watching Kobe play um, while he was still in high school alongside, I think, I don't know if he was on the same team, but it was certainly the same camp that Noah's buddy, uh, Tim Doyle, who later went to Northwestern, <laughs> um, was also at. But uh, as as you've watched that progression and, and watched him go go through and have his career, Boise State and all, and then becoming, you know, first father-son tandem to face each other as player and coach, um, how much, how much of a, how much is he similar to you in terms of his, his coaching style right now and, and, and what he might've picked up on from you? Well, you know, you know, as a coach, you evolve, you know, how I coached when I was in Cleveland was different than how I coached when I was in Seattle and how I coached in Milwaukee was different than how I was in Denver. You got to build your system around the team that you have, the strengths and weaknesses, and you got to build it. And he does a great job there. Uh, I would say right now, he's been very, he's very much attuned and aware of how to play fast. Uh, he's been around my team a lot uh, when we were in, when when we made the mellow trade, and then had those two or three or four years where we, everybody thought we were going to fall to the bottom and we actually got better. And, you know, how to play fast. And he knows the, he knows the, the fundamentals and philosophies of, of the game that they're playing today. Uh, you know, the quick game, the, the, the pace game, the play before you said defense. Uh, and, but he's like, I think he's a lot like everybody right now, trying to figure out how you become a good defensive team against <laughs> the offensive mentality today. I mean, there are a lot of coaches in the NBA call me up and say, no one plays defense anymore. And, you know, when you watch some of the games, the games get very offensive oriented in a lot of nights. And uh, I still think there's some secrets and some experiments that could be made defensively that could maybe make the game more balanced. As right now, I think the game is tilted being an offensive game more than ever than ever since I've been in it. And uh, defensively, I don't know if it's zone, if it's, you know, changing defenses. But I think there's got to be some uh, some address right now of or adjustment right now to find some answers to become more defensive-minded in, in general. Would zone get Carmelo another year in the league? I'm sorry? Would zone get Carmelo another year in the league? I think Carmelo can play in the league if he just falls in love with playing 22 to 25 minutes a game. And when he comes into the game, tilt the game to him offensively and let him be, let him be Lou Williams off the bench. Let him be a guy that if you give him a, an average mat- matchup, he can get you 10 points in about eight minutes and do it very easily. So I think he's just got to, you know, gradually accept that, his role in the NBA now is maybe not as a starter. Do you think he has that in him to accept that? I think we all wonder right now. Yeah, know, for sure. And, and maybe, you know, maybe he doesn't. Maybe that's not what he wants. Maybe he wants to retire going out the way it ended now. And, uh, but, you know, I, you know, he has, he has a championship pedigree that's never gotten in the right place at the right time. You know, you could blame it on the coach or you can blame it on him. The truth of the matter is probably a little bit of both. And I honestly, you know, like 
you know, I had battles with Melo, I had battles with Jr. and I want them to, I want them to win. I want them to win a championship. I want them to feel that special, that specialness of being on the best team in the world for about six or eight months. George, I think that's misunderstood about about you and and the way I've heard you talk. I I've, I had not spoken to you before this podcast, but the way you talk about your former players always seems to be with such positivity. And and we always hear about, oh, this coach had friction with this player and they had a difficult time. Um, what do you make of the idea that that, that it, it seems to always almost be misunderstood or that it's characterized as something that different than a, a player-coach relationship, which obviously changes after that's no longer the case? Well, it's, I mean, I, I laugh all the time because the title of the book being Furious George was was meant to sell books and you know earlier in my career I was much more furious than I was at the end of my career uh but you know what kind of get you get labeled you know everybody labeled me I, I don't like rookies well you know my last couple of years in the league I had Ty Lawson as a rookie I had Kenneth Freed as a rookie I had a lot of young players like Timo Mosgoff and Costa Kufis and a lot of young players have had a lot of success with me. But early in my career, you know, when you're drafting 28, 29, and when you're playing in Seattle, and you don't have a rookie playing, and you don't want a rookie because you've got a really good team, they think that, that, that you can't evolve into becoming an understanding at playing young players. So you get labeled, you know, you get labeled as, you know, a confrontational coach. I think players like confrontation. If you're telling the truth and you're demanding what you think you have to have, I think players respect it. They might not like it. And, you know, today's player, I think, is just like, you know, they say today's player is a little more difficult to coach. I think players want to get better, and they want to be told what they need to do to get better. Uh, You might not be able to do it as angrily as we once did it, but, you know, I still look at everybody goes, well, you got to be different now. Well, I know Eric Spolstra, and I know Greg Popovich, and, you know, I know that, I mean, there's still many tough-minded coaches in this league having a lot of success doing it the old-school way, and I still – and every coach has got to evolve. you gotta, you got to constantly evolve. If you don't evolve, you're not going to be successful. But I, I still think, you know – the truth sometimes sometimes is exaggerated as a problem with players, but the real 90% of the NBA wants to be told how they get better, how we can win, and how, how we can be successful. Was Sean Kemp like that? Sean was not. Sean was, Sean was you know, Sean just was kind of a lazy worker at times. But he he always he always competed in the game. One thing I liked about Gary and Sean, you know, they were sometimes a nightmare a little bit in practice. But when it came to playing basketball and when the game was on the line, they were men. They played the game the right way. And when you talk about evolving as a coach, did did that come from Dean Smith? Well, you know, as a as a seventeen, eighteen year old kid going to college, you know, and you went to, you went to Carolina basketball. I mean, I, I knew nothing about basketball when I went to college, and so my foundation of basketball was Dean Smith. And the one thing I loved about Coach is he was always innovative. He always was trying to find what is going to be the next thing that's going to make the game better. And, you know, from four corners to run and jump defense to changing multiple defenses. Uh, and then at the end, he, he you know, he, he ran the secondary break probably as good as anybody in basketball. And that secondary break is still being played in the pro game today. Uh, I love I love this mentality of always trying to find find out where the game is going before it gets there. Uh, so, yeah, I got that from him. But I think you get it from the NBA. You know, I mean, the whole thing about the NBA that no one wants to admit is, you know, there, there's not a bad coach in the NBA. 
there's 10 to 15 coaches in the NBA that lose, and there are losing coaches. But, I mean, every coaching staff in the NBA has high, high basketball IQ, high quality of, of ability to coach. Unfortunately, 15, when you play games, 15 teams are out to lose. And that's just the na- nature of the NBA right now. You bring up a great point about the NBA coaches, but I'm still so fascinated with, with some of the Dean Smith stuff uh, because we have so much respect for him and, and, and all that he accomplished. When all the Carolina guys are getting together and, and sharing old stories, what's, what's your favorite Dean Smith story that you like to tell? Well, philosophical, the thing that I like to tell is the fraternity of Carolina basketball is, I think, the closest-knit, tight, love-fest fraternity of basketball in the world. And the blessing is that I'm a part of that. Uh, and, And the truth of the matter is Coach Smith loved the game, but I think he loved the student athlete more. He wanted his players to get it, to get their degree. You know, he never thought the game of basketball was going to be where you could become rich. I mean, he recruited you to get your degree. And I don't know what the number is. It's like 95% of all players under Dean Smith graduated. And that's a pretty amazing number. So I think that philosophically, that's the one good story. Um, you know, the one story that he told me once that uh, I was a senior when John Lucas was a freshman. And John Lucas played in Durham, North Carolina, and wanted to go to North Carolina. And John Lucas said, if I come to North Carolina, can I, will I start? And Coach Smith said point blank, only if you can beat out George Carl. And that's who Coach Smith was. He never gave anybody any. He never gave any starting position to anybody in recruiting, including me. Um, you know, he said, "He said, I, you know, he would say to me, I think you're good enough to start, but you're going to have to earn that." And John Lucas would go to, of course, go to Maryland, and would be lefty's guy. And you know, I got to play against him for a couple times, and fortunately, I think we won most of those games. And, but John Lucas, and, and you know, I laugh about that all the time because, you know. I didn't. I never. I never knew that at the time. But Coach Smith was on. You know, he believed in it. the game was a we game and not a we game. And he, you know, I think he would have trouble coaching today's players because I don't think a lot of our high school AAU players are are in the we basketball as much as I think he would like them to be. What was it like being back on campus after you won the the seventy one NIT? Well, I think the NIT was was one of you know we I don't know if I, you know anything about that NIT team. We won every game in the NIT by twenty points or more, mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of our statement that the NCAA you know we should have been in the NCAA, and uh, you know and then of course the next year we got McAdoo. Bobby Jones became a sophomore. And we had a dynamite team that year, and we ran into Florida State before we got to Bill Walton. Uh, but those two years were, you know, they were great years for Carolina basketball. You know, the only thing that we came up short was we got the NIT championship and not the NCAA championship. you remember what it was like in the locker room in, after losing in the 72 Final Four? Uh, it was miserable because uh, – you know, we got beat by a very athletic team. Um, Florida State had two little point guards that were so much faster than I was. I think I covered the back of them more than I covered the front. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they beat us fair and square. U Durham was the coach. Um, and we would go on, of course, and beat Louisville in the, in the, in the consolation game. But we might have overlooked Florida State. Uh, but I don't think Coach Smith did because he did tell me before the game, this is the one team we probably shouldn't press. But since we pressed every game, every every possession of every game, he wasn't going to change. Yeah. And he was probably right. We shouldn't <laughs> press them. It, since Noah's 
jumping on the topic of uh, memories that you, you probably want to forget. I'm, I'm going to add to that. <laughs> uh, um, the Sonics leaving Seattle. I, I, as I've, I've read quotes that you've had about, about the Sonics leaving the city and, and what it's meant. Uh, and, and you've said multiple times, the word I, I keep seeing is, is depression about it. How, how much has it really hurt you that, that Seattle doesn't have a pro basketball team right now? Well, my daughter still lives in Olympia, Washington, and uh, I have two great grandkids, and I'm, I'm up there probably three or four times a year. And I was in I was in Olympia when it was announced that Seattle was going to Olympia, Oklahoma City, and I had to, I was so emotional, starting to cry. I was driving a car at the time. I had to pull over and just cry a little bit. Because I just I just didn't think it's just not right, um, you know, and and life isn't about you know being you know life being right or wrong. I mean, we all we all have moments where we think we got we got the wrong side of the the you know the situation. But even today, it's depressing for me. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of things you know talked about Seattle Gate and why it happened and. Uh, there's a lot of times I, I do, I have a lot of conversations about, you know, what happened and why it happened. And, um, and then, you know, even today, you know, I, I, I keep hearing that Seattle, why doesn't Seattle have an expansion team? And I hear that, you know, the NBA would probably favor maybe even going to Mexico City or, or some maybe overseas before Seattle. Seattle deserves a team. I know they're going to build a new building uh, there, and hopefully that will maybe get get the, the NBA a little more positively motivated towards uh, bringing the team back to Seattle. What, what is your? You talk about all the stories about that you hear about why the team left. What is your? What's your understanding as to why it happened? Um. I just think they were losing money. It was not, you know, it was it was easier to bail out and move it and get your money back and get out than it was to kind of fix it and maybe go a year or two or three more of rebuilding or reuniting a team. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I'm not a big I don't I don't study the gossip or the politics of the NBA. Uh, the front offices and management and how that, at that time a, a team was probably worth $300 million and now teams in the NBA are worth $3 billion. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's 20 years. I mean, I, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a hell of an investment. <laughs> I'd think, say. You know. So I, you know, I think Seattle has enough money. I think Seattle you know, I've heard that the that Stern and the and the legislature didn't get along. I don't know what happened in the city, or if there was something in the city that stopped them from uh, feeling positive. I have no idea. I, I want to follow up on just the value of teams, and as there are reports now that Jim Dolan would be interested in in selling the Knicks, and and as, as desirable as the location it is. To play for the Knicks, the idea of it is is almost romanticized. The the franchise itself has been abysmal for years. Can an ownership change turn around the New York Knicks? Uh I'm I'm just an amateur sociologist right now, and I would say yes. I think there's an, a dark cloud over the Knicks. And I honestly believe ownership has is a big part of winning a championship and building a winning team and building a winning culture. And when you have scars and negativity and failure, and I just think, you know, it's hard. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why they shake things up. That's why they fire coaches. That's why they fire general managers. That's why they tra- they trade players. Is because they don't think they can fix what they have, and I think a 
a new new face running the team would probably serve it would be a step in a direction that I think could be turned into a positive direction. You know, it it may not be the uh, spotlight of New York City, but you did spend some time in Bristol, Connecticut, which a lot of people have said have similar vibe as with uh, New York <laughs> and as, uh, as a TV analyst with, with ESPN, obviously. And uh, I know one of the highlights for at least our producer, Bruce Bernstein, um, who who worked with you there at ESPN was was your time doing uh, Swaggy G when you and Cassidy Hubbard did the the rap album uh, picture and you picked Gucci Mane as as your favorite rapper of all time. <laughs> uh, how much did you enjoy that experience and 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 working in TV in general? TV is okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I always tell a story when I speak. Uh, that being in the NBA, there's a lot of ego management going on. But Bruce Bernstein had a lot of ego management he had to do. Uh-huh. I mean, Still there's does. a lot of ego. There's a lot of ego in a sports room, and I kind of laughed about that a little bit uh, about you know you know how people fight for their opportunities and stuff like that. But I enjoyed ESPN. I mean, I didn't enjoy the travel, but. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be against doing it again, but it's not high on my priority either. Uh, you know, I think in 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 the game of ESPN and and sport commentary, the coach. You know, there's too many times uh, ex coaches have to protect the coaches, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure. I like protecting coaches because I think you know coaches have the target on them way too much. And I think the good franchises understand that the coach is an asset and having a good coach is a big time positive. But, you know, I'm not sure a lot of owners have that, that opinion. So then aside from family, what is high on your priority list these days? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm searching for a new adventure. Uh, You know, could it be in basketball? Could it be with, you know, spending a year traveling around the world. I've, I've thought about spending the time, but having a 14-year-old, uh, you know, probably has handcuffed me to maybe do a, do a year adventure traveling and, and, and talking basketball throughout the world, starting in Europe and maybe going to China and, and just trying to learn where the game is. Not in America. We know where the game is in America. But, you know, maybe experimenting and trying to find, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I saw the other day where Africa looks like they're going to have a, a leg, mm-hmm. and that would be that would be an interesting thing to be a part of. Can I go with you? Uh, I don't know. It depends how much you pay me. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay him to travel. Oh, I got to pay him to travel. All right. Um, so it's the coach. It's the catch and shoot podcast. So we always close with this question. One guy that you either coached or played with that you want to have the ball in a catch and shoot situation to win the game. Oh man. Wow. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, from a standpoint of guys I played with, I'm big time, a guy by the name of James Silas in San Antonio. Before George Gervin, there was James Silas. Both of them made big-time shots at a high, high level. So I would say those guys I played with would be the two guys. And I would probably put Silas went before he got hurt ahead of Gervin. Uh, as for players, uh, offensively, I loved uh, Ray Allen. I loved running plays and getting Ray Allen open. I think he was courageous and loved to take the big shot. But Sam Cassell was pretty good there, too. <laughs> and then the thing I loved about my years in Seattle was, you know, you'll hear coaches all the time at the end of the game, it's not about making shots, it's about making stops. Well, in Seattle, we were pretty good at stopping you when it counted, and that was always fun. Well, Coach, we really appreciate 
all the time and, and best of luck with completing that priority list. Well, I enjoyed it, boys. Hopefully, uh, Bruce will keep this thing going and we'll do it again soon. Noah, that interview was unbelievable. I love hearing from George Carl. I could talk to the guy all night long, but um, I'm most fascinated by how much you'd actually be willing to pay in order to go travel with him somewhere. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, if I was getting paid by somebody else to travel with him, <clears throat> Pure Hoops Media, and then I could then give some of that money to George, then okay. Yeah, I could, I could do that. First class accommodations if we're going overseas, which it seems like we're going around the world together. Apparently, you guys are, are going according to, to you. I, I mm -hmm. think it's time to let Darlene take it away. Fellas, what do you see in your crystal ball? All right, so Noah, we typically do headlines that you're going to read next week, but because we're at the All-Star break, how about headlines for the rest of the season? And I'm going to start you off with one, which sort of is like at the end of the season, but I think it's most valuable freak. I'm picking Giannis to win the MVP. I think uh, what Milwaukee has done this year, and not just that, but sort of the perception around the league and sort of for fans is that this guy has just taken his game to another level and everyone is just tossing praise Giannis's way. I think we're looking at the MVP for the 2018-19 season. It's so funny you said that because we don't exchange what our headlines are going to be. I do think Giannis is going to be the MVP, and and I'll give you my headline coming off of that is MVP night being the last game of the regular season on April 10th is Oklahoma City at Milwaukee, and you've got Paul George against Giannis. And if you want to even extend, extend it a little bit on, on April 9th, the night before, You've got Houston at OKC, James Harden against Paul George. So the last two nights of the season, you know how recency bias goes. The last two nights of the season could determine the MVP. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. I mean, let me last year. We, last year we had that Minnesota Denver, which we're gonna have again this year. And it's wild that game went to overtime. Minnesota made it, and they made the playoffs for the first time in over a decade. And then Tom Thibodeau doesn't make it through this season, and Denver goes home. And now look at Denver in in second place in the Western Conference. Uh, what else you got? Uh, the other one for me, Anthony Davis saga ends in ugly fashion. I don't know where this Anthony Davis thing is going, and I I can't pretend to predict that I do know where it's going, but it's it's not going to and in a, in a positive way. I mean, I don't know whether the league is going to have to step in. I don't know whether the Pelicans are going to shut him down. I don't know whether he's going to get hurt. But Yeah, I just, he's not playing again. I have this awful feeling that, like, we're getting something really negative for the league to come out of this. And I, I, and I think it may be as simple as just a lot of barbs through the press and through the media of Anthony Davis's camp saying, oh, they never treated me right. And then the Pelicans are saying negative things about how he wasn't a good teammate. And Noah, you've talked about on past podcasts about his sort of reputation right now for just shutting it down on his team before he literally shut it down. And I think that you take all those things into account. It's a black cloud for the league right now. And I, I just think that it's going to really end in, in a bad in a bad fashion. And I'm I'm upset about it. But I, I think that's what we're going to see. Yeah, I don't think he's going to play again for the Pelicans. I think the the shoulder contusion, mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna turn into the the world's most painful shoulder contusion since he's he's, he's not going to be playing anymore. But this is what we talked about. I think this was two weeks ago, and it's something I talked I, I've talked about at All Star too, and and with others uh, on the air that, and then you heard Adam Silver say it that. There were so many who said that, and were tweeting about it and writing about it, how great this is for the NBA. They're stealing the headlines for from the Super Bowl. Look at what Anthony Davis is doing. And I said, and we talked about it at uh, at Olympic Tower in the in the commissioner's office. They're not happy about it. And this is, and we and we we talked about it with with Bobby Marks. That okay, so so when do we reach critical mass here? And 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 these types of headlines, not all press is good press when you're a behemoth like the NBA. And I think that's what we've gotten to. My other headline, and oh, and by the way, Lakers 
uh, at the Pelicans on Saturday, and then Lakers home for the Pelicans on Wednesday. So maybe maybe he gets maybe Anthony Davis does go to LA and he gets the standing ovation. But I hope I hope LeBron gets booed every single time he touches the ball on Saturday in New Orleans. If if LeBron even plays or makes that trip, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, um, my final headline is going to be. We're preparing for a Lakers-Warriors first round of the playoffs. Now, I, I really did want to say that the Kings were going to make the playoffs and not the Lakers. And, and I, I still think there is a good chance of that. But it's sexier if we go with... Well, the Kings making the playoffs would be. But it's sexier if we go with LeBron gets the Warriors in the first round of the playoffs. The Lakers right now, Adam, have the ninth toughest schedule left out of anybody in the league. And the Kings are at 21st. Clippers, 23rd, and the Wolves sitting there too. They have the fifth hardest schedule left. The Lakers close the season, their final five games, with OKC, Golden State, the Clippers, Utah, and Portland. That's their April before they would end up getting the Warriors in the first round of the playoffs. As much as, as, much as NBA fans like to root against the Warriors, NBA fans would be rooting for the Warriors to beat the Lakers by an average of 40 points a night in a sweep in the first round of the playoffs. There is no question about that, Noah. And you know what's interesting? We haven't even really talked about the idea that let's say the Lakers don't get to that eighth spot. Let's say it is somehow that the Kings or I don't think the Clippers are going to maintain it, but maybe the Timberwolves do get mm-hmm. there, right? Like, what's the narrative going to be? I mean, are we going to see Luke Walton on on the bench next season if the Lakers fail to no. make the playoffs with no, LeBron no, no, James? No, no if, he miss, I mean, if, they, if they miss the playoffs, he's finished. You want to talk critical mass? I mean, Mike Wise interviews Jeannie Buss. We, we're going to have to have him interview Jeannie Buss again come come uh, May or June because that is going to be an interesting scene about how everyone treats the Lakers if they don't make the playoffs. And as you point out, if they do, even if they do, uh, the Warriors could probably end them in ugly fashion, or at least that's how fans will be rooting for it i think we're about to go off the rails all right let's go off the rails quickly on valentine's day last week we we talked about our valentine's day plans and i said how great it is because i'm never around since it's always all-star so my wait daughter- wait, wait wait i'm cutting you off before what? you even go into this Noah. i have to tell you that you keep touting on social media about how you're this much better husband than than I am. Which no, no, I you with. you said you said that, and so I, and I just repeated it. Okay, fair, but I didn't need you to to publicize it. But then this all happens. We go out to a nice pizza dinner on on Valentine's night, and and now I'm hearing from the waitress. She goes, you know, I listen to the podcast. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> it's nice to see you guys are at a really fancy restaurant on Valentine's Day. So I had you to thank for that. So before you go into any beautiful romanticized <laughs> Valentine story about your family and how great they are, I just want you to know you helped ruin my Valentine's <laughs> night. So I want to thank you, Noah. No, I didn't know you could eat at Domino's. I thought that was just delivery. <laughs> no, Lacocos is awesome. I oh, love nice. Lacocos. I love Trish. She's amazing. So I'm giving her a hard time. Amazing place. But anyway, continue with your your one. So so so, uh, so my daughter likes. She's four and she likes hosting theme parties once a season. She likes having a winter party, a spring party, a fall party, a summer party. So for the winter party, it was it was going to be a, a, a Valentine's Day theme, and so. Before I left for All Star, yeah, before I left, we went to Party City. Got, I mean, it, it was as if like the cart had thrown up hearts. We just, you know, heart dessert plates and and dinner plates and napkins and uh, uh, decals for the wall and uh, uh, pink and red solo cups and all, 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 all sorts of things. And even made baked ziti because it's red with the white cheese, everything. And um, and of course, she had her salad on the side. And she asked for seconds of salad, and so it was. So we had a we had a great Valentine's party, and and she Eden was thrilled. Uh, Marissa was great. the The dinner party waited for me, and I was and I was glad it did. Uh, it, it's spectacular. You live this incredible life. You're this you're this world traveler. Uh, calling yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had to I had to Mississippi. Uh, speaking of uh, going around the world, I go to Mississippi on on Friday. 
There you go. You're this you're this incredible traveler, and then you return home, and you have this picturesque uh, idea of a, of a family, and uh, it's just it's awesome. I actually I, I find your stories to be uh, incredible, and I, I I can't wait to one day meet, <laughs> meet your daughter because she sounds like a handful, and that's pretty cool that she likes to host. Like so, when when this is all taking place, though, I am curious. Uh, you know, is she serving the food? Is, is oh, no, she it's welcoming funny. It's, people no, no, at the door? Like, what, no, what's no, the she, role as host? Yeah, no, she, set, she set the table with me, and I overheard her um, when she was making – She oh, she made red red velvet cake, of course, uh, which she she loves to bake, but she doesn't really like to eat it. And so she took a few bites, and that was it. But she, uh, she said – I overheard her tell Marissa, uh, Mom, we – only you and me and dad can clean up, right? Not the guests. The guests never cl- should never clean up, right? And Marissa's laughing, and I'm laughing, and I'm laughing for the other from the other room. It's the best. It's the that best. is that is really cool. I hope there was yeah. lots of glitter. Uh, no glitter. Come on, no glitter. And then we put an end to that. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. All right, Noah. You know how I always love to end the show here. Um, we need to thank the people involved, and that includes our producer, Bruce Bernstein, obviously Jeff Torini, who's editing the entire Pure Hoops media right, team. I, I just don't understand. Like, I I saw them in Charlotte, and they said to me, look, you really don't need to thank us all the time. You really you really don't. Like, you know, it, it's, it's not necessary. And then I said, no, no, we really, really have to. Um, even if it gets edited out, I think I do think it's a great idea. So continue. I, I thought we were contractually obligated. This is news to me that we don't have to have to thank all involved. No, we don't. We don't have to thank them. I like maybe like once a month, maybe. Okay. Okay. So we'll start that. But I, I do appreciate them personally. I don't know if you do, but personally, forgetting the obligations, forgetting what we have to do. I personally want to thank them, Noah. I don't, I don't know about what you stand for, but I'm all about that. Plus, I think that people should, though, regardless of what you think of our entire crew, I think people should download not just this show and, and listen to it, which I'm glad that you're listening right now, but also all the Pure Hoop shows, uh, whether it's the Wise-Ass Show with Mike Wise or uh, the Pure Hoop Show with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. I think all the shows are great. And uh, please subscribe, rate, review. It, it does mean a lot to us. I'm glad people are listening and hopefully enjoying the show so far. It's been a blast to work with you thus far, Noah. And uh, that's, about, that's about all I have to say on the topic. That'll do it. Talk to you next week. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.